Today on Onward to Victory, we take a trip down to a very small southeastern Texas town of just a few hundred folks. What merits such a journey, you may ask? Well, our destination is Rockne, Texas, a tiny spot on the map, 1,249 miles from the proverbial house that Rockne built, Notre Dame Stadium. So what's the story here? Well, we simply have to get to the bottom of this one. In addition, you're just in time. We're celebrating the two-year mark of the show today. So put on that eye black Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. football fans and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter and I am the host of this show and this here is episode number 45. I have a really fun episode for you today in which we will jump into here in just a couple minutes, but first I want to thank you, yes you, for joining me here today for yet another serving of fighting Irish history and lore. Trust me, for this episode, you're not going to regret tuning in. It's a really fun one. And even with a show that kind of prides itself on being a little different, but this one really kind of is as far as what we are accustomed to doing around here. And every once in a while, I'm able to thankfully sit back and kind of reflect on how much this show really means to me. Uh, I do almost all of the research, writing, producing, promoting, all that kind of stuff. And it really is an absolute labor of love in really putting together each episode is. And you know, I'm not a full-time podcaster. I wish I was, but I've strived to put out approximately two episodes per month for the past couple years. But speaking of the last couple years, I am thrilled to let you know, just in case you're stumbling onto this show for the very first time, that this 45th episode in show history represents the two-year mark that I've been doing this. Two years, 45 episodes, as I kind of alluded to in the show introduction. So, sincerely, thank you all. I will try to comprehend what all of that means during the show wrap. I'll kind of walk you through the early history of the show. So, it would truly mean a lot to me if you stuck around and made it to the show wrap-up. Not just for the what I think is the really interesting early history of this show that you're listening to right now, but also I'm going to be doing a giveaway to commemorate the second anniversary of the show with a very episode-relevant prize. And I'll be giving instructions for entry into that contest during the show wrap. So stick around. If not anything else, you get to hear some really cool information about the show, but you might also learn how you could win something. Now, if you haven't already listened in, and I know many of you have, because it has quickly become very popular, actually among the most popular episodes I think I've ever done here, jump back and listen to the Memorial Day Remembrance Special. It was incredibly rewarding 
to put together. And I think it's a really good listen. And it's really relevant regardless of when you listen to it, even if it's not Memorial Day. So if you haven't heard that one yet, please go back and listen to it. And remember that if you really love the show and you are looking for ways to support it, well, here you go. I am selling t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other things. Go over to the Facebook page to check them out. And if you're not of the Facebook persuasion, do not fret. Send the show an email at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com and I will send you a catalog or what the merchandise I have available. All proceeds will support the show and also a soon-to-be-named nonprofit organization. I've got it narrowed down to a couple, and I probably will crowdsource you all to see which ones you think we should kind of lean towards. But if you have an Onward to Victory shirt, don't hesitate to snap a photograph of yourself wearing it and send it to the show, whether by Facebook or email. I'd appreciate seeing it. So yes, there is the merch, but there is also the Onward to Victory consensus all-American program, which consists of the kind-hearted folks, both past and present, who have donated to the show and have really, honestly, kind of kept the lights on and kept me motivated to continue, and I really, really appreciate that. Uh, I would like to give a very warm and special thank you to my pal, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, who is a huge sponsor and supporter of this show. Thank you so very much. And another thank you to fellow consensus All-American Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, who has one of the coolest Irish collections this side of Augie's locker room. But if you'd like to join the consensus All-American squad, please simply visit paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Again, words can't express just how thankful I am for all of you. All right, so it's no secret we tend to tackle a lot of very famous topics as it pertains to the University of Notre Dame and the football team, but some of the best work I believe the show has done, in my humble opinion anyway, tends to be those episodes that focus on less well-known or even obscure topics. After all, that's how we learn new things, isn't it? So I got to give credit where credit is due here. I was actually tipped off to the subject of this particular episode by the aforementioned Mr. Brad Glazier. He messaged me back in March about the existence of something, well, I actually didn't know existed, and that is Rockney, Texas. Brad said he was in that particular part of the country for work, and while trying to find directions to the Rockney crash site, which is on private property, by the way, just in case anyone finds themselves out there, the GPS on his phone actually wanted to take him to Rockney, Texas. He said, quote, just stumbled on this and I thought you might find it interesting, end quote. I told him I had no idea there was such a place and that, hey, there may be a future episode there. Well, here we are a few months later and thank you for the tip, Brad. I really appreciate it. All right, so let's get going. Pull out your maps, atlases, or globes, or just open up Google, whatever floats your boat, and head down to Texas. Yes, that largest of states in the lower 48 part of the contiguous United States. Yes, that 28th state admitted to the Union way back in 1845. When you're looking at a map of Texas, you see Austin and San Antonio fairly quickly. That area, particularly in the last couple decades, has quickly become known 
as the Greater Austin-San Antonio Corridor. It is an area that has experienced exponential growth and projects to continue to do so in the coming decades. Anyway, one of the cluster of eight counties which comprises the corridor is a certain Bastrop County, just southeast of Austin. But along the southern border of Bastrop County is Little Rockney, Texas. Rockney sits about 30 miles from Austin. It's a small, unincorporated community of just a few hundred people. All right, so I hope we have achieved an adequate sense of place. But what's the story here? How did this unincorporated community become known as Rockney? Well, let's keep diving. As it turned out, the community was, well, let's call it pretty flexible with what it was called to begin with. The first settlers arrived in the area in the 1840s and were largely German Catholic immigrants. As it were, the tiny burg was first called Walnut Creek, aptly named for the nearby stream. But again, the area was settled heavily by immigrants, which in the mid-1800s, again, meant it was probably heavily Catholic, which was certainly true for Walnut Creek. As was the case for most small towns in the 19th century, Walnut Creek was predominantly rural, and most of her citizens were farmers. Their cash crops tended to be cotton and corn, which was visible as far as the eye could see in virtually every direction. In 1891, the good citizens of Walnut Creek, in an effort to commemorate local couple John and Rosina Lehman, who donated 10 acres of land for a new Catholic church and cemetery, while also acknowledging that Walnut Creek no longer represented the geographical epicenter of the community. So soon, the citizens actually took to calling their little burg Laymanville. This was also because Martin Lehman, who appears to be the son of John and Rosina, was the town's first postmaster. So Martin seemed like a logical choice for the role since the town's first post office was located inside Lehman's general store. So pretty fitting, right? So we've gone from Walnut Creek to Laymanville based on, yes, some very prominent citizens. Anyway, back to the church. On March 27, 1892, the Sacred Heart Catholic Church was dedicated on the layman's land. It was, and still is to this day, the center of town. And if you're still on Google as we speak, check out the images of the church. It's just, it's really, really cool. Coincidentally, the church was dedicated a mere 23 days after the fourth birthday of little Knut Rockney, who was still living in Voss, Norway at the time. His family would actually emigrate to Chicago, Illinois the following year. By 1900, Sacred Heart had actually added a school. And for the first school year, they counted 77 students from 31 different families on their muster rolls. Really not bad for such a small town, but it does give you a good sense of just how Catholic the region skewed. The school would actually remain open for 62 years, though it did close in 1962. All right, so the town is known as Laymanville until approximately 1922. 
It was that year that W.M. Hilbig and Sons General Store opened, and it must have been quite a draw for the town formerly known as Walnut Creek and Laymanville changed its name once again. To celebrate their general store, they began calling it Hilbigville. Anthropology sure is interesting, but I have to give it up here to Marion H. Nelson, who compiled much of this early history of the town while she was president of the Rockney Historical Society. Either way, I think this joint had a little bit of a mild identity crisis going on. But at some point, Sacred Heart gained a new priest. His name was Father Francis Strobel. Now, Father Strobel was purportedly quite the Notre Dame fan. During the 1920s, while the team was still widely known as the Ramblers, they were, of course, absolutely dominant. Whether it was George Gipp, the Four Horsemen, or the subsequent teams, it was said that locally, the Irish coach Rockney had no bigger fan than Strobel himself. In fact, as it was later written in the Austin American Statesman, quote, Father Strobel wore out his left ear hearing confessions and his right ear listening to Notre Dame football games, end quote. Which, not to segue us off the main topic here, but it does bring us to the radio medium here quickly. I think of my buddy Len Clark as I write this, but how is it the tall, white-haired priest of Hilbigville could even follow the Irish? Again, we are over 1,200 miles away from South Bend. Well, of course, the newspaper would carry the scores, but it was Rockney and the Notre Dame football program that really took advantage of what was later to be called the golden age of radio. In fact, the first radio broadcast of a Notre Dame game was in 1922. It was a homecoming game against Indiana. While the game itself was a rousing 27-0 victory, which saw fullback Paul Kastner score three touchdowns, it is not actually known if anyone actually heard the game. Since radio was still an upcoming medium at this time, and not many folks in South Bend had them, and rating reports really weren't a thing yet, it's really in the realm of possibility that nobody had their dials tuned into South Bend's WGAZ radio station at that exact time. But by 1924, major radio stations in Chicago and New York began carrying Notre Dame football games, which would eventually be picked up by stations across the country. Kind of like in the present day where Notre Dame belongs to no conference, according to Notre Dame historian and, of course, show favorite Murray Sperber, the, the school, quote, did not give any one radio network exclusive rights to broadcast the football games. Instead, the field was open to many different broadcasters around the country. This, in turn, helped strengthen Notre Dame's unique position of having a nationwide fan base, whose groundwork was, of course, started even before Knut Rockney, end quote. So anyway, this fervently German Catholic settlement in Texas quickly became Notre Dame fans, which would have, of course, been pretty easy for these folks to root for because, of course, at the time, most of the Notre Dame football team was, in fact, German or Irish Catholics. However, it was on the last day of March in 1931 
that the man who had never stepped foot in Hilbigville, which was a town that had never hosted a football game, was killed in a plane crash in Kansas. That man, of course, was famous Notre Dame football coach, Knut Rockney. So the town of Hilbigville was due for a new name. I suppose you could say a more permanent and official one. Allegedly, depending on who you spoke to, the town was still consistently referred to not just as Hillbigville, but also the former names of Walnut Creek and Laymanville. It was just kind of a mess. And frankly, the place was small enough that apparently an official name wasn't really necessarily needed. However, that need for a new name necessitated when the well, there was an opportunity to attract the Humble Oil Company, who wanted to develop a field in the town. This is according to a 1990 issue of the Austin American Statesman. So, <laughs> inexplicably, Father Strobel, again, the town's number one Notre Dame fan, was able to convince civic leaders shortly after this that a new name should be decided on by Sacred Heart's 7th and 8th grade students. What? Now, I get it. <laughs> Sacred Heart was the center of town, physically, socially, metaphorically, all that. But seriously, now don't get me wrong, it's definitely an outside-the-box idea. I just find it really humorous. So, again, this is 1931. Town officials appear to have agreed under at least one circumstance. Father Strobel would pick the names first, and then... Let the children vote. This was probably a good idea. For Father Strobel, well, that was easy. The first candidate he submitted was his favorite Catholic poet, Joyce Kilmer, who was killed in battle during World War I. Just so it's clear, Joyce Kilmer was a man. I was actually completely unaware of this, just as a quick aside. He wrote the poem Trees, which tends to be considered his most famous work. So add Kilmer, Texas to the ballot. The second was, well, you guessed it, the recently passed Irish football titan, Knut Rockney. So add Rockney, Texas to the ballot as well. According to town lore, on the big day, 12 children were to vote, entrusted with the task of renaming the town. And... After Father Strobel dug through the ballot box and sorted out the votes, he found a deadlock. Six votes for Kilmer and six votes for Rockney. And just to add a juicy layer to this, Strobel also found that every boy voted for Rockney and every girl voted for Kilmer. Go on home, Father Strobel said, and we'll try this vote again tomorrow. But wouldn't you know it, the following day, it was one of the girls named Edith Gortz who broke ranks and cast her vote for Rockney. But why? According to the Rockney, Texas Museum curator, Minnie Barch, she said, quote, I think her father was a very big Notre Dame and Canute Rockney fan, end quote. But maybe not. According to a 1990 profile on the town, again by the Austin American statesman, she may have had a bit of a wayward streak in her. She said, quote, I did it because I was that much of a rebel, end quote. What a little hellraiser. 
But all jokes aside, alas, due to Edith's subversive ballot, the children's vote passed in favor of Rockney 7-5. And the town henceforth would become known as Rockney, Texas. And for the town with no official name for the longest time, this one stuck. And it is how it is still known to this day. The wily Irish fan, Father Strobel, left Rockney just a couple years later. And I tried to track down and find an obituary for him. And I couldn't, but that kind of bothered me. But I did find out later in an interview given with one of the town citizens that someone said that he went to Europe later where he passed away. So in 1988, let's fast forward just a little bit to celebrate the centennial of Rockney's birth. A commemorative stamp featuring the coach was released. Though they didn't have a post office, one of the official release gatherings of the stamp was to be held in Rockney, Texas. So representatives from the United States Post Office converted a couple rooms in the parish hall of, yes, you guessed it, Sacred Heart, to serve as the town's post office for the day. There were camera crews interviewing the residents of Rockney, many of whom were descendants of the town settlers. The Austin, Texas Notre Dame Booster Club showed up. A large poster of the Rockney stamp adorned the corridors of Sacred Heart. I mean, after reading about it, really seemed like a gas. For a few hours that day, the epicenter of Notre Dame and Rockney's spirit was found in his tiny namesake Texas town. In March 2006, a bust of Rockney was unveiled in front of the Rockney Museum. It was sculpted by none other than Jerry McKenna. If that name sounds familiar, well, rightfully so. He not only did all the sculptures you'll find today rung around Notre Dame Stadium, but no fewer than 11 statues of Rockney himself. And that, my friends and fellow Irish fans, is how Rockney, Texas got its name. There's a gentleman on YouTube who did something of a driving tour around Rockney. It's very short, let me tell you, but it's really fascinating. And the video itself is really easy to find. So head over to YouTube and type in Rockney, Texas. It's actually among the first results you will find. And just to give you a heads up, the creator is named Boondocking with Dennis. I think he goes to a lot of small towns and he kind of documents his travels. But it's fascinating. And if you made it this far in the episode, well, you will actually be able to put together all the pieces that Dennis is talking about very quickly. But who knows? Maybe you will soon be planning your next family vacation to none other than Rockney, Texas. And I'll be right back. I hope you enjoyed that slice of not just some off-the-beaten-path Notre Dame football history, but kind of felt like some Americana as well. 
I wanted to do a bit of a fun one for the second anniversary, and this one felt like it was pretty unique. As I mentioned, even for a show that kind of lives in the unique or lesser told stories. Once again, I want to thank my pal Brad Glazier for the tip he gave me back in March and uh, let you know you certainly get the assist on this one. So depending on who and what you are reading, there are, well, give or take, I guess 100,000 or so, 2 million podcasts from which you can choose to listen to in 2021. When it comes to Notre Dame football, there are no fewer than, well, at least a couple dozen, perhaps even more. Despite the obvious stiff competition for the Irish fans' attention, in June of 2019, I decided I would start a Notre Dame football podcast. Mostly because I guess at the time I thought, well, why the hell not? I mean, I love Notre Dame football. I don't miss a game. But that, of course, in itself is not really a unique trait. Notre Dame has hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of fervent fans, those who, like many of us, don't miss a game, or rarely miss a game. In fact, I, I, I guess I miss so few games that I could tell you exactly which ones that maybe I didn't miss, but I probably couldn't devote all of my attention to, and they're for damn good reasons. Let me tell you, I can remember when I was a groomsman at one of my brother's weddings, and and if you're a long-time listener, you know I have a lot of brothers, but however, the day was October 5th, 2019. And in between pictures and while waiting for the reception to begin, I was watching the Notre Dame Bowling Green game on the NBC app on my phone. Even a bit earlier that very season, my entire family, and again, I have a comically large one, mind you, we went to watch my sister who plays volleyball at Xavier University over in Cincinnati. But just as her match was ending, I was again firing up the old NBC app and later the TV because I had to watch the Notre Dame Navy game. I know I'm not alone here. Anyway, I wanted to make my program a bit different than what I was seeing from most of the other Notre Dame podcasts out there. And that's not to say that the others aren't great. I take in many of them, but... Honestly, I knew I wasn't going to be able to effectively differentiate anything I was doing if I was just going to go into current Irish insight, game previews, recaps, recruiting, all of that. I mean, I love that stuff, and I'll talk about it till the cows come home, but I'll cop to the fact that there are just too many who have been doing it longer and who could do it far better than I ever could. And of course, while I do dabble in the current Irish for entire episodes, perhaps a couple times a year, I recognize again that the other shows who have worked diligently to build their audiences deliver exactly that. And they deliver it, and the audience expects them to do it in spades. And like I said, I am among their audience. So I thought it would be, honestly, a tough market to break into. However, I did feel like I had something of an ace in the hole. And I was someone who has been a lifelong history fan. And then I actually spent four years studying it in college. While choosing to study history in college is probably not certainly the major you want to choose if you want to have a, uh, I guess, wildly lucrative career, I do believe it gives you the tools to look at things a bit differently. And perhaps most importantly, it helps sharpen my curiosity 
along with my knack for research and storytelling, which are obviously, I'd like to think, two pillars of the show. So I decided that the show, which I soon dubbed Onward to Victory, of course for the last few lyrics of the infamous School Fight song, would not just be about the Notre Dame football team, but also the university's history and how it all intersected with some of the major movements or events in United States history. I also had plans to tell some of the lesser-known stories about some famous players in program history. And soon, this morphed into a full-blown search for players and figures in the campus and program history who have been largely forgotten as the pages of time have turned. The campus and football program is absolutely steeped in legend and lore, so why not have a podcast that just investigates it? While it seemed like a bit of a stretch at the time, a Notre Dame football history podcast that is, but I guess here we sit. Now from the onset, I don't think I could have told you what my expectations were. I probably didn't think I would make it two years and now 45 episodes and counting, But I guess, again, here we sit. (laughs) The first episode, which I wrote when I found out his birth date was coming up, was about Notre Dame's first Heisman Trophy winner, quarterback Angelo Bertelli. Most Irish fans, I think, probably know that name. But my guess is that many did not know that he served on the front lines of Iwo Jima. Alas, the first episode was titled, well, A Heisman at Iwo Jima and it remains the most popular episode in show history even today. Now, I can remember the first few months. I'd check my podcast dashboard every 30 minutes or so just to see if somebody else had listened to the Bertelli episode. Frankly, I was thrilled to have 33 listens that first month, June 2019. I kept a notebook nearby with anything that could resemble a show idea, which I scratched notes in furiously as they kind of came to my head. And since I'm continually reading up on Notre Dame, some of the ideas came pretty quickly and easily. What's the story with the Father Ted and Martin Luther King Jr. photograph? That was episode six. Man, who knew that the first Notre Dame mascot was an Irish terrier? That was episode seven. Whoa, was it possible that Coach Rockney's plane was downed by the mob? Episode 10. And now four-part series about Notre Dame's intersection with the American Civil War was also produced. Anyway, you get the idea. I suppose I speak about the content in a cavalier fashion, but as I have brought up in the past with each episode, regardless of when and where it takes place, I try to make sure the research is sound, and I give the most honest depiction I can. But still, I wouldn't consider myself a wildly creative person. So I have really have to hand it to Notre Dame on this one. Coming up with ideas for shows has never been really that difficult. And it seems like it's a well that doesn't really run dry. But I guess no matter how you cut the cake, I wouldn't still be doing this without folks listening. So again, thank you. Thank you for two awesome years that has really given me a a lot of purpose, a lot of motivation, a lot of drive. And though I say I'm not a super 
creative person, which I would still say I'm not, it has, I think, really kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone a little bit. And I, I do sincerely appreciate that. I hope you continue to enjoy the show, and I hope it lasts as long as it can and as far as we can take it. And if you've made it this far, now I will give you the contest giveaway details. So send a message, any old message, to either Facebook Messenger or email at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. And again, just a simple message. It could say, go Irish, or perhaps a story about an early memory as a Notre Dame fan, your favorite player, your favorite game, whatever it might be. Just send a message. Let me know that you've made it this far in the episode. I'm going to be giving away something that I think is really cool and actually really distinct. So it is actually straight from our friends at Augie's Locker Room, your one-stop shop for unique Notre Dame merchandise, memorabilia, and also just good company. I, Every time I'm in South Bend, I do not skip Augie's. It is an, an absolutely wonderful place, and if you haven't been there, you simply need to go. But this is from our friends at Augie's Locker Room. It is a postcard of the 1988 national championship team however what makes it really cool is on the back has not only an autograph of the nose tackle of the team that year future nfl star chris zorich but also if you remember from the episode when rockney texas opened up that de facto post office for a day to actually distribute the Rockney stamp. It's a 22 cent stamp. There is a 22 cent commemorative Knut Rockney stamp affixed to this postcard. So not only is it just a cool postcard of the 1988 team autographed by Chris Zorich, but it also has the commemorative stamp. Talk about the trifecta. So all you have to do is send the show a message. And I will, if it's okay, and if it's not okay, let me know. I will probably read all of the messages in a future episode, just because I think it's cool to share those kinds of things. So please do. I would really appreciate hearing from you. And with that, I reckon it's time for me to sign off. Again, thank you to all the Consensus All-Americans, my pals, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, and Brad Glazier, of Williamsburg, Indiana. Special thank you to Joseph Rakish, whose song, Knut Rockney, serves as the show's theme song. Yeah, just as a quick aside, Joseph was one of the first people I reached out to when I was doing this show, when I was kind of doing the plotting and planning for it, and you know, he was more than willing to let me use the song. His One of his songs is the theme song, so I still greatly appreciate it. Go over to Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, however it is that you digest music, and put Knut Rockney by Joseph Rakish on your playlist. You certainly won't regret it. So this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast going, I can't believe it, two years strong. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.